Welcome to the Heart of Rural America podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Radke, an American cattle rancher and motivational speaker, raising my kids and writing children's books in South Dakota. There's a David and Goliath story unfolding in agriculture today. And I don't know about you, but my money is on the underdog, the hardworking folks who value faith, family, freedom, and their farming communities. This show will highlight the untold stories of these resilient and determined families who I have the great pleasure of meeting in my travels across this nation as an agricultural speaker. It is my hope that their stories will remind us to live with great courage because we are not alone in this fight to keep producers on the land and meet dairy and eggs on the dinner table. Now let's hit the dusty trail together as we uncover the heart of rural America. Hey folks, it's Amanda Radke from CK6 Consulting. I hope you'll join me in the Appalachian Mountains on October 7th for the Point Pleasant Angus annual production sale in Bland, Virginia. Point Pleasant will be offering half interest in three E093 bred heifers, as well as a stout set of age-advantaged and yearling bulls. A sale headliner will be Point P. Oski, an E093 by Deadwood Sun. Plus, Point Pleasant Angus offers free nationwide delivery. Join us for a day of great cattle, southern hospitality, and fellowship. I'll be speaking at the event about the abundance of opportunities and optimism I see in the beef cattle business today. A special thank you to our event sponsors, Virginia Cattlemen's Association, Virginia Cattlemen's Insurance Agency, and the Virginia Farm Bureau Young Farmers. After the sale, stick around for the musical talents of the Central Pickers, a local Southern rock band. Point Pleasant Angus has locations in Tennessee and Virginia, both farmed by the Shaver family for generations. The Shavers live by the words of Inky Johnson, honoring those that came before us and leaving a legacy for those coming behind us. For complete details, visit pointpleasantangus.com. The auction will also be broadcast live on cci.live. We'll see you on October 7th at the Point Pleasant Angus annual production sale. God bless. Welcome to your show. Here's my mom, Amanda Radke. It's Amanda Radke for another episode of the Heart of Rural America podcast. I have a special guest with me who I've been friends with for several years now. We met at an event in Wyoming where I was speaking and we hit it off just talking about issues facing agriculture and private property ownership in this country. And and so I'm very excited to welcome Sarah Fallon to the show. Welcome. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. So you are a viral sensation on TikTok. You speak frequently about issues facing rural America, and and it really resonates with people, the way you break down these issues. You have a, a law background. I guess tell us a little bit briefly about who you are, what makes you tick, what your background is. Sure. So I am the sixth generation in my family to grow up on a ranch in Wyoming. And ranching is what both sides of my family has done for generations. And we still have a few ranches that, you know, different parts of my family run. And so I grew up caring very much about issues that impact agriculture, specifically the the cattle industry. Mm -hmm. And I have kind of an interesting situation because I also grew up with two attorney parents. 
And so both of my parents were really like the first generation of either of their families to go and do something not specifically ranching. And so they both became attorneys to help agriculture. My mom always says that she became an attorney so that she could save cowboys. And so I also grew up with a certain amount of legal knowledge just from, you know, dinner table discussions and, and things like that. And I always cared very much about those legal issues. And so then I went to the University of Wyoming for undergrad and then decided to continue on with law school, also at the University of Wyoming. And I really specialized um, and focused on these agriculture and natural resources related classes. So then after I graduated law school, I started working at my parents' law firm and I enjoyed the issues, but it didn't feel quite like the right place for me. And then I was working on a case that I was very upset that we were we were losing. It was the case from a couple of years ago where um, the federal government, the Forest Service, was shooting healthy cattle in the Gila Wilderness area in New Mexico. And I, for some reason, un still unknown to me why I decided to do this, but I made a TikTok video about uh, the Forest Service shooting these cattle and it went viral. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from that was I had always kind of thought that people who weren't involved in agriculture didn't care about issues that impact agriculture. But what I learned is people do care. They just don't know about them. Yeah. So that's what started my um, social media career, I guess, is trying to educate people who aren't around agriculture all the time about issues that impact agriculture. And then again, how those agricultural issues impact everybody because you know every everybody's got to eat everybody needs all of the medications and and byproducts that come from agriculture and so i started doing that and then most recently i was asked to come back to the university of wyoming to teach the agriculture law class and so i'm starting that just this week um, yeah. very soon <laughs> That's a brand new, brand new thing for me. And so I just, I am very excited to work on these legal issues and just tell everybody about why they're important. It's been fun to watch your career and your ability to speak out on issues and explain them from kind of a legal perspective, but also as a practicing rancher, boots on the ground rancher. And what strikes me or what I love about your story is because your mom was, has been her whole life so active in agriculture at conferences speaking is finding out that you would also speak with her when you were a kid. And a lot of folks know I take Scarlett on the road with me, little nine-year-old Scarlett, and she'll steal the show quite often when she gets up on stage and introduces me. But I, it's fun to see like a grown-up Scarlett. Like, look at, that's where you got your start, right? And tell us a little bit, maybe a favorite memory of being on the road with your mom and, and being a kid and having to speak on stage in front of all these people. Absolutely. It was so funny. My mom travels all the time and does a lot of public speaking on these issues as well. And she would get to go cool places. And she would always tell me that, you know, if I got to go with her, you know, if she had to work, I had to work too. And yeah. so she would actually give me like a legal portion of her speech and make me research the law and um, how it's applied. And as a, like a 10 year old, give a little short legal presentation. Though I have to say probably my favorite memory is actually with my dad. My dad didn't do quite as much public speaking, but he does also do it. And when I was in seventh grade, 
I really, really wanted a pig, you know, and we've always had cattle and horses, but we never had pigs. And I really wanted a pig. And my parents had told me that if I got straight A's all year, they would get me a pig. And I was worried that they were not going to hold up their end of the deal. And so as like a 12 year old, I wrote a 10 page contract with (laughs) attorney witnesses from my parents' law firm. I had it notarized (laughs) by the notary. I think that was the the point when everybody knew I was going to go to law school is when I wrote (laughs) a, a contract for a pig. And I made my parents sign it. My mom loves it. She has it hanging in her office. I love it. So I write the contract. I get straight A's all year. And my parents are like, well, we signed this contract. We have to get you a pig. And my dad took me with him to South Dakota, actually, to give a a speech. And he was was talking about um, pipeline issues. But he told me that I should get up and talk and, and tell my story and see if any of these producers know where I could get, you know, a little piglet. And so (laughs) I got up and I told this story and I read my contract to the audience. And by like 5 p.m. that day, someone had called me and said that they had a piglet for me. (laughs) And so then we went and we got the world's ugliest potbelly pig that was a little teeny tiny, tiny pig that I got to take home with me from South Dakota. (laughs) I I knew we were kindred spirits because actually I have kind of a similar story. My dad grew up raising hogs. And when I was in 4-H, I desperately wanted to show pigs. And he was like, no, I hate pigs. Like I hate scooping the manure. I don't want that mess. And so I, my first lobbying experience was doing a 4-H speech. And I wrote, I wrote a speech basically appealing to the county agents about why they should force my dad to make me go buy a pig. That's how, that's how I got a, a show pink too, but I, I'm much more of a cowgirl now in hindsight. Yeah. That was fun, but I, I think I'm good. <laughs> that's, that's about where I'm at too. You know, the pig was fun. I took the pig to school with me one time when I was in eighth grade, I took him on a leash and all, and maybe this is where my agriculture advocacy started, but some of the kids at my school in Wyoming were like, is that a dog? It's like, no, what? it's a pig. Look at it. Yeah. yeah I, I knew that we were very similar also. <laughs> well, and that, that's the great part about agriculture I found is the kids get to go along for the ride. They get to be very heavily involved in the business and you learn it from a young age and you understand it. it it's, it's heavy stuff. It's big stuff. And, and kids rise to the occasion if they, if they get that opportunity. So I, I think that's just so cool that that's how you got your start. The Heart of Rural America is presented to you by my dear friends at CK6 Consulting, a cattle business consulting service with a purebred Angus focus. I recently joined the CK6 crew, and I would love to connect with you at an upcoming sale. Check out the sale calendar at ck6consulting.com to learn more about opportunities to invest in elite Angus genetics coming from our progressive and innovative clients who truly exemplify what it means to be the heart of rural America. And for all your semen needs, visit ck6source.com, an online stud service that features some of our clients' top performing bulls. Give Chris Earle, Wes Teeman, Cody Fleeman, or myself a call with any questions or business inquiries you may have. CK6 is all about families helping families, and I'm so proud and grateful to be a part of it. Now let's get back to the show. 
if folks aren't following you on social media, you've been on Newsmax, you've been on mainstream media talking about these agricultural issues. And so you're not just preaching to the choir. You are speaking to the voting public that can determine how farmers and ranchers get to operate. And so it's it's incredibly important. As we kind of segue to what's going on in agriculture, I know you keep a very close tabs on, on things. There's been some commentary you've made this summer over some decisions. And I guess maybe just bring folks up to speed about what's been going on with the Biden administration in the last couple months that you've been keeping an eye on and, and what folks should know. Absolutely. So one of the things that is very recent is the Biden administration just came out with regulations regarding the Endangered Species Act. And the Endangered Species Act, just to give a little bit of background, was passed in 1973. It was actually passed under the Nixon administration. And in the in the 70s was when pretty much all of the major environmental legislation that we have today was passed. You know, we were having a lot of big uh, environmental issues. Rivers were being lit on fire. There were a lot of bad things happening. And so something needed to be done. And so all of these laws were written right about the same time. The Endangered Species Act, I think it's worth noting that it was passed to save, you know, our big signature species. So some of the sp- first species to go on the endangered species list were you know, the bald eagle, the grizzly bear, the the peregrine falcon, the American alligator, you know, several of those big signature species that would have major impacts to our ecosystem if they were to go extinct. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, in my personal opinion, the Endangered Species Act does not work mm-hmm. because what has happened is these species get listed and then they stay listed forever. And the Fish and Wildlife Service is so backlogged with endangered species listings and petitions that they don't get to focus on real conservation. And so what we have is we have somewhere around 1300 species. I can't give you the exact number, but somewhere around 1300 species that have been listed on the endangered species list. And we have 3.4% of species in the last 50 years that have actually been recovered. And this year, the Biden administration is celebrating 50 years of passage of the Endangered Species Act. And I can't quite grasp why would we, we would be celebrating something that literally has a 3.4% success rate. Mm-hmm. So um, when a species is listed on the endangered species list, the Fish and Wildlife Service then has to designate critical habitat. And what that means is they, you know, get out the map and they say the species lives here. You know, the species is maybe declining in population because of degradation to the habitat or, uh, you know, they, they try to pinpoint the reasons why the species population is declining and they choose the habitat. And when that habitat is designated, you cannot adversely modify the habitat. Mm -hmm. And that is a very broad term. So if you have, you know, an example in Wyoming is we had the Preble's Meadow jumping mouse listed on the endangered species list and critical habitat was designated in Wyoming and cattle grazing is an adverse modification to Preble's jumping mouse habitat. And so that's a big problem for all of the cattle ranchers in Wyoming, because in those areas where the critical habitat was designated, they can't graze their cattle there. Mm -hmm. And really, it it sort of depends on the administration that is in office at that time. But under the Biden administration, 
they've said most activities that you can do to the land at all is an adverse modification and you can't do it because if you modify the habitat and you accidentally, you know, harm, harass, or kill one of these endangered species, um, you can get up to $50,000 in federal fines or five years of federal prison. And so a lot of landowners really do not want habitat designated on their property because it so vastly restricts mm-hmm. what it is you can do. And so that's kind of generally how the Endangered Species Act works. And the Biden administration has come out with regulations that change the places where they can designate critical habitat. So before you could only designate critical habitat in places where the species has at least one of the biological necessary things to live in the habitat. It has to be kind of in the right temperature. They have to have adequate food sources, adequate shelter sources, things like that. And the Biden administration has now said that the Fish and Wildlife Service can designate critical habitat even in areas where the species has never existed and does not even have to meet the biological needs for the species. And so, you know, theoretically, they could designate polar bears in my backyard. Hmm. And that would obviously be a huge problem. And polar bears are never going to live in my backyard in Wyoming. But that is that is what the administration has the ability to do at this point. And so in your opinion, the this act has been weaponized, hijacked, and would you say it's it's attacking private property rights? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that radical environmental groups do is they will petition to list hundreds of species at one time, and they'll submit it to one office, one little local Fish and Wildlife Service office. The Fish and Wildlife Service then has 90 days to complete adequate research. And when you have so much work to do, of course, the office can't complete that research. Mm -hmm. So then the radical environmental groups can sue uh, over the Fish and Wildlife Service violating the Endangered Species Act because they missed a timeline. And then because they're a nonprofit group, they get their attorney's fees paid at $750 an hour. There's not a single person in my law firm that makes $750 an hour. Apparently, we're on the wrong side of these environmental issues, but they really turned it into a money-making scheme. They've also been able to use the Endangered Species Act to do things like stop water usage. So in Central Oregon, I'm working on a case where the Oregon spotted frog was designated and listed in the Deschutes River through Central Oregon. And... You can talk to the radical environmental groups and they petitioned to list the Oregon spotted frog, not because they care about the frog population, but because they want the river to run freely. They don't want the farmers and ranchers to hold water in their reservoirs for irrigation. They just want the river free flowing. And so they find a species that is potentially at risk. They petition to list it and it shuts down water usage out of that river. You will not, you, nobody can convince me with the research that I've done that the majority of these species are A, petitioned to be listed with good intentions, and B, even being managed correctly. The Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't have the time, money, or resources to manage all of the species that they have. And there are still petitions for new species all the time. I talk about this on the show quite often about how it all comes down to private property rights. And this is just one more kind of nail in the coffin of ways that we are not allowed to manage our land as we see fit. Working cattle can be stressful at times, 
but the job is made so much easier with equipment that is safe, strong, and simply designed. I highly recommend Real Tough Livestock Equipment for all your working facility needs. We just installed the deluxe chute at Radke Land and Cattle, and it has been an absolute game changer as we run cows through our chute during AI season. It's durable and easy to use, and it's made to last a lifetime. Real Tough offers a wide range of products, including calving barns, panels, loading chutes, tubs, alleys, and portable working systems. Manufactured in the U.S. of A., Real Tough is family-owned and operated. Their commitment to helping farm and ranch families truly exemplifies what this show is all about. Learn more at realtough.com, that's T-U-F-F, and be sure to tell them Amanda sent you to receive an extra bonus with your order. Let's get you some iconic green Real Tough equipment headed your way. I promise you're going to love it. Let's talk a little bit about just another tier of this, uh, Waters of the U.S. I know you've talked a lot about that on your your social media platforms, but can you just briefly explain how that how WOTUS has been weaponized against producers and where it stands today? Sure. So Waters of the U.S. is a provision in the Clean Water Act, which was also passed in the, the 70s kind of era. And some background on WOTUS is... When the Clean Water Act was written, and there were there was a Rivers and Harbors Act before the Clean Water Act, and waters of the U.S. in the traditional sense is supposed to mean waters that impact commerce. So the federal government under the Commerce Clause um, has the ability to regulate things that travel from state to state. And so when the Clean Water Act was written, that meant, you know, rivers or big lakes, you know, so like the, the Great Lakes, you know, Lake Superior, um, the Mississippi River, things like that, where you could put a boat and sail commerce down the water to get from state to state. So that is what the federal government was supposed to have authority over to regulate. So that means if you were going to do something that potentially impacted one of those, you know, major water sources, you had to get a federal permit. The Clean Water Act said, Additionally, that you cannot pollute from a point source into a waters of the U.S. And what that did was it said you can't you can't do anything to impact these waters. Literally taking water out of the river is technically a pollution. If you look at the legal research surrounding the language in the Clean Water Act. And so then what has happened is the presidential administrations, each administration gets to write regulations to interpret the law. And because waters of the U.S. is not technically defined in the law, the administration's agencies, so the EPA, gets to say what waters of the U.S. is. So you can look at regulations and see that as a problem because that means that every presidential administration, when there's a big like political swing, the regulations change a lot. So you look at you know Obama to Trump to Biden and think about what huge swings in policy that is. And the administrations had been taking more and more authority to regulate waters. So originally it was just these big navigable waters. And then it was, you know, the wetlands attached to the navigable waters. 
And then it was a stream connected to the wetland, connected to the navigable water. Mm -hmm. And then under the Obama administration regulations, literally, it would be a stream connected to a stream, connected to groundwater, connected to a man-made ditch that holds water for, you know, so many days of the year. And so what that meant was even people who are really far away from actual big water sources still had to get an EPA federal permit to do really anything on their property. And that brings us to a case that actually started, I believe, in 2006. It was the Sackett versus EPA. And that case took place in Idaho. And the Sackett family had bought a piece of property that was in a residential area. It was like a subdivision kind of place. And people had already been building houses all over this area. And so the Sacketts buy their property. It is across the street from a man-made ditch that eventually runs into Priest Lake. And Priest Lake is an actual navigable water. And so the Sacketts buy this property. There's no actual water on their property. They start digging a hole to put their house up and there was groundwater. So there's water in their basement. And the EPA shows up and says, you violated the Clean Water Act. This is a water of the U.S. And you can either reclaim your land, put it back the way it was, leave it like that for 10 years, and then get a permit to build your house again. Or we are going to fine you thousands of dollars a day until you do so. And the Sacketts said, you know, that's violating my private property rights. This shouldn't be a water of the U.S. And so um, they took the EPA to court. And it was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. It worked its way all the way up the, the legal chain. And in, I believe it was either April or May this year, the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision that landowners should be very excited about because the U.S. Supreme Court in a unanimous decision, um, you know, it's not one of the 6-3 splits that everyone keeps talking about, unanimously decided that that was a violation of the Sackett's rights. And even further, they pinned down the definition of waters of the U.S. So they said that a water of the U.S. has to be one of those traditional navigable waters the wetlands directly attached to those navigable waters or a stream that is so closely attached to a navigable water that you can't hardly tell the difference between the navigable water and the stream. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is the EPA does not have the authority to regulate waters that are so far away from, you know, these big navigable rivers and lakes and things like that. And so really what the Supreme Court said is they said, okay, Congress, it is your job to write the law. If you want the law to be more specific and give the agency more authority, then you need to do that. You can't just tell the EPA, which is an, an unelected federal office, you know, the director of the EPA, they are all of the executive agencies. They're totally unelected. They're appointed by the president and they essentially had the unfettered power to write regulations that we have to comply with without us being able to vote them into office. Mm -hmm. And so the Supreme Court said, Congress, that is your job. You need to take your job back. And if you have a problem with the Clean Water Act and you want it to be more, more specific, then you need to amend it. Right. It's really great news. And I, I hope the Supreme Court keeps making decisions like that because I think the federal government and the federal agencies are out of control. Absolutely. With how much they impact our rights.
I mean, they'll hold these careers for 30, 40 years and they're just silently calling the shots. Doesn't matter who comes in and who comes out. And it's, it's, it's those wild swings. It's how are we supposed to even be living under the letter Mm -hmm. of the law when there's just this whiplash of Mm -hmm. changing dynamics. And so is a mud puddle under the jurisdiction of the federal government? Well, we, we about got there basically. And so I, this half hour show is really flying by and you are a wealth of info. And I do want to talk about some fun stuff in your life too. But last issue, I think would be worthy of talking about would be Biden's 30 by 30 and and kind of switching gears from water to wildfires because you live in the Western states and it seems to be this notion amongst politicians and activist groups that the land is better left alone, untouched instead of grazed or mined or logged and, and used for recreation and all of these things that help us to take care of our natural resources. What is going on with the federal government and how are they trying to seize 30% more land by the year 2030? So, you know, they're doing it in a few different ways. The state of Wyoming is actually in a lawsuit against the Biden administration right now, specifically the Bureau of Land Management, because, you know, the federal government can buy these properties. You know, if somebody just wants to sell their ranch, you know, nobody can tell you not to sell to the federal government. And so, you know, the federal government is buying property to try to use for 30 by 30. Our lawsuit, the Wyoming lawsuit, which I'm not directly involved in the lawsuit, but that Wyoming is suing over is the Bureau of Land Management bought a fairly large ranch in Wyoming and didn't talk to any of the local government. So our governor didn't know that land was being purchased by the federal government until after the federal government had announced, we bought this land and we're going to use it for 30 by 30. And our state has a huge problem with that. Another thing that they are doing is they're trying to designate, you know, more wilderness areas. For 30 by 30, right now, it's still not very clearly defined, but the Mm -hmm. only lands that can count for this 30 by 30 are wilderness areas, wild and scenic rivers, and that's pretty much it. So anything that has human interaction on it, so U.S. Forest Service lands don't count, BLM lands don't count. And so that's why the federal government has needed to add an additional 440 million acres to what they already own is because they are cutting pretty much all use. You know, this even includes renewable energies, which is crazy because the Biden administration pushes so much on renewable energy right now. And so they're using several fairly sneaky ways to try to gain this land. And they're not going to let anybody touch it at all. They essentially just want it to be a wilderness area. You know, national parks don't even count. Wow. To me, that's just the exact opposite of what we need to do. We know for a fact when cattle graze the land, they reduce the brush, they promote new plant growth, growth, the wildfire spread slows down when we responsibly log, we remove trees, we promote new trees to grow, and on and on it goes. Instead of just being this big kindling, just waiting to spark from a cigarette being flown outside of a car window. And it's so it's it's always the exact opposite of what we need to do is what our federal government appears that's their agenda or their way of thinking. And so I guess for people that are listening to this, because there's nothing I hate worse than listening to a podcast or a show or a commentator talk about all these problems. And then I get so worked up and I'm and I have no outlet of, okay, how do I get involved in this fight? What can I do to make a difference? So to everyone listening, what what can they do to get involved, to be more proactive, to fight for their private property rights? 
So one of the things that as far as federal regulations go is there is always a public comment process. Mm -hmm. And so the way that it works is these agencies come up with regulations, they propose a draft rule, and that goes into the federal register. And then there is a mandatory public comment period. And the federal agencies are required to read every single public comment and take those into consideration before coming out with a final rule. And so that is really the public's way to have their voice involved in this regulatory process. And so I think that that is one thing that's really, really important. I think the next thing is, is when you are voting, it is so important to look into your favorite candidates' perspectives on environmental issues. So much agriculture and environmental issues are so tied together, you know, because new policies on climate change impact possibly the way that we can grow food or, you know, endangered species, like I talked about earlier, also impacts, you know, where we can, you know, where we can raise livestock. Mm -hmm. And so really paying attention to the opinions of people and to see if they are actually well-versed on environmental issues from a production standpoint. Because somebody's saying, yes, I just want to protect the environment, chances are they don't have any idea what that means. And chances are they have fallen into what is the the propaganda that has been that has been spewed to generations of children, you know, in schools and and in colleges and things like that. Yeah. I as I look at the upcoming presidential election, there's been eyebrow raising comments from probably all of the candidates at this point that I'm like, I'm not sure you actually grasp what's going on here mm-hmm. in the heart of rural America. And that's I'm I'm glad you brought that up about the commenting because if, if we have a very little voice, we are very underrepresented in Washington, DC. And if they don't hear from us, they might hear from the lobbyists we send to town to talk on our behalf. But unless they hear from you and I, it's it's your story that can make all the difference. It, even on these water issues, what brought me to start paying attention to them was I, w- I was writing articles on it for a newspaper. 10 years ago. And this little old lady called me and I couldn't believe how the federal government was harassing this lady in Iowa over, over water issues. And I, they can absolutely destroy your life if, if they set your, their sights on you. And so we, we kind of, we have to band together. We have to speak out and get more vocal and, and try to explain to these politicians who we are and what we do to provide the essentials of life. So to switch gears as we wrap, you're taking on another title, another role here in the upcoming months, and that's wife. So congratulations to you on your upcoming wedding. Tell us a little bit about the lucky guy. Oh, thank you. So he is actually from Alabama originally, and then he moved to Wyoming when we were in high school. And he always said that he wanted to move out of Wyoming, but he got his foot caught in the door. And so he works on our ranch with my dad, which is, which is great. And he has, with his dad, a safety consulting business. So they go and they they work on power plants and pipelines and, and things like that to also keep our homes, you know, lit and warm and things like that. So he's a, he's a really great guy. And, you know, he puts up with, with me traveling all over the place and he takes care of my horse for me. And, and so I, I am very lucky to have him. That's wonderful. And what's his name? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Awesome. Well, I feel like a lot of times, especially I want to say to younger women listening to this, because 
when I was growing up, I was told girls can do anything. They can do anything. They can achieve anything in their careers. And we're seeing that. We're seeing women in leadership positions all over doing great things and and fighting for what's right. And I, I have so many admirable women in this field of agriculture that are just leading the charge. But I can honestly say no one ever told me growing up that the most important thing you'll ever do is be a wife and a mother. It's, it was like pushed to the side, like it was secondary. And yet we're seeing the divorce rate well over 50% in this country. And you can do it all, but it might be at the sacrifice of your family and, and these other things. So if I could just give you a word of encouragement, I'm 13 years into this marriage thing, so I'm still a rookie, but we've got four kids in the ranch and we're doing all the things. But it really doesn't matter what I can achieve in agriculture if I don't have my teammate Tyler alongside me. If if my family unit falls apart, everything else it follows suit, and and, and that's what we're seeing in society. So I I always say, and and this would be my encouragement to anyone listening is there are battles outside of our pasture gates that we have to worry about, but we also have to make sure our home is in order, that our family is in order, that our local community is is right and sound and so my my advice to folks is to start at home and work your way out and if you have a strong teammate alongside of you you really can do just about anything so that would be my words of encouragement to you and also i must say because we are two girls on the show sarah bought some really great jewelry for her wedding from amandaradke.com i am anxiously awaiting to see the whole look come together and the the pictures that will that will ensue and follow your big day. Oh, thank you so much. I am I bought some very nice turquoise jewelry. My wedding is very much cowboy cowboy themed and so I'm waiting on just one more piece to show up in my mailbox and I'm I'm excited to try it all together too. I'm dying to see it. So, last thing you guys, I just saw on your TikTok, you have a fun honeymoon plan. What are you guys doing? Oh, yes. So Jeremiah and I bought a 1972 slide in the back of the pickup camper trailer, and we are going to put it in the back of my pickup and take a road trip down to Florida to go visit the ocean. And, you know, I think we're going to go to a NASCAR race, which is something I've never done before, (laughs) but um, really just camp our way down into the south and, and back up into Wyoming. So we're still in the middle of the renovation process. It's been a little tricky and that's not something that I've ever done before. And so I'm, I'm learning a lot of new skills right now. (laughs) This is a grand adventure that you'll be talking about when you're a grandma and your the grandkids are asking about what it was like when you were young. So that it sounds exciting. I'm sure you're going to document it on your social media channels. So let's end with that. Where can people follow you? Where can they tune into you discussing all these issues? Sure. So I have social media platforms just under my name. I've got, I'm on TikTok and Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn, Sarah Fallon, last name is spelled F-A-L-E-N. And um, I also just recently got a website up for my small business, which is called Wild West Advocacy, wildwestadvocacy.com. And you can see all of my information there as well. Wonderful. Well, I know everyone is going to be eager to follow along your adventures, your wedding, the camping, and of course, the agricultural issues from a legal standpoint. So thanks for all you do. Thanks for coming on the show. And we'll see you down the dusty trail, Sarah. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Amanda. The Heart of Rural America is presented in part by Lynn's Heritage Angus and Meats by Lynn's. Founded in 1963 as a Chicago neighborhood butcher shop, and growing to an international supplier of high-quality beef in the white tablecloth space, Meats by Linz is a four-generation family-owned business. The Linz Heritage Angus program was developed to allow for greater control 
of the end product, a focus on using elite Angus genetics while also managing the feed, environment, age, and weight of the cattle allows Fred Linz and his crew the ability to source the very best beef produced from the heart of their Angus program, meeting and exceeding the needs of their customers worldwide. Discover more at linzheritageangus.com and shop for beef at shoplinz.com. Use code AMANDA20 to save 20% on your next beef purchase. That's a pretty sweet deal, my fellow beef lovers. Thank you for tuning into the show. If you found value in the message, I would be so grateful if you would subscribe and share to help spread the word. Until next time we meet on the dusty trail, I'm Amanda Radke, and this is the heart of rural America.